So looking at my um, Facebook feed this week, a video came through. It was a live video that Mark Laberton was posting. Mark Laberton was, he was actually on staff here, like, Ryan, how long? He was, did the college ministry here, didn't he? Were you born yet when Mark was doing college ministry here, Ryan? But Mark was, uh, he worked in the college ministry here between Steve Hayner and Denny Ryberg. I believe he pastored a few churches since then. He's now the president of Fuller. How many of you, a couple years ago, Mark preached here while George was on sabbatical? Do you remember hearing Mark preach? So this live Facebook feed that Mark did was actually from, he was in Montgomery, Alabama at the National Monument for Peace and Justice. Maybe you remember um, in the sermon series this past year, George preached using a book by Brian Stevenson called Just Mercy. Do you remember we, we looked at that book? And Brian Stevenson is the one who started the Equal Justice Initiative. And as, as any of you who maybe read CT, Christianity Today, noticed the Equal Justice Initiative is has established this national monument for peace and justice. It's a lynching memorial. It remembers the lives of the more than 4,400 black, primarily men, but also women and children, who were lynched between 1877 and 1950 in these years of racial terror. And where Mark was standing was in the center of the six-acre site. There is an open-sided building with the roof very much the way our roof goes, but it's much lower, and hanging from it are large, there's 800 Corton Steel monuments for the 800 different counties in the U.S. where these lynchings occurred. And outside of the covered monument, in the ground surrounding, there are identical steel monuments laying on their sides, and the hope is that these different counties, representatives from these counties, will come and claim their monument and take it to their county to erase, pardon me, I'm sorry. I get emotional by 10.30. To erect it in memory and for the sake of reconciliation uh, of what happened in their county to these men, women, and children. Now this is a somber topic for a sunny Sunday morning, isn't it? And the reason that I bring it up is because just as Mark went on pilgrimage, to the memorial in Montgomery. We are taken in Genesis 4, 1 through 10 this morning on pilgrimage to a field outside of the Garden of Eden, where within the first generation of Adam and Eve's family on the earth, there is a horrific, violent, murderous act that takes place fueled by envy from a brother against brother. And all of these stories in Genesis 1-4 aren't just about two individuals, just as Adam and Eve represent all of humanity, Cain and Abel represent uh, humanity in, in brother-to-brother relationships, sister-to-sister, neighbor-to-neighbor. So let's take this pilgrimage together by turning to Genesis 4, 1 through 10. And in your pew Bibles, we're all the way up to page 3. If you're able, would you please stand and let's, let's read together Genesis 4, verses 1 through 10. Listen carefully, you're hearing and reading the word of the Lord. Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Next she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. 
In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, for his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock their fat portions. And the Lord had regarded for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain said to his brother Abel, let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Where is your brother? The field where Cain murdered Abel is a marker of the, the violence, of violence. And, and the question that our text is looking at, the story looks at, is what is the source of this violence? Uh, What's the source of this violence, and what are we to do? What are we to do? So the story is pretty well known to us. There's a, a slide for you of a carving that's in the Louvre that was taken from a, um, from a cathedral. And you can see on the left is the beginning of the story. Here's Cain and Abel, and they each take their offerings. And one thing I love about this carving is you just see God's hand, because the text it's a little obscured in the text exactly why the Lord takes Abel's offering but doesn't take Cain's. Um, when I was a kid, we were taught that, you know, Cain kind of phoned it in and brought the worst vegetables he could find and threw it on the altar, and, and, and Abel brought the very best. But the text doesn't say that. Um, I guess you could argue that God is a uh, high-fat, high-protein keto and not a vegan, right? But the text doesn't say that. We don't know why. We know that God accepted Abel's offering, and then we know that Cain was angry. His countenance fell. He was very angry, angry enough to take his brother out to the field and to, uh, according to the text as we have it, premeditated, murder his brother. Tries to rid himself of his brother, but the Lord shows up and goes face to face with, face to face with Cain, the same way that God came face to face with Adam and with Eve after their transgression in the garden, and asks him straight up, where is your brother? And Cain lies straight up. I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? I'm just throw shade at the Lord. And the Lord lets him know, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. What we have in this panel is two truths that we know of who God is. He is a God who calls for our worship, a God whom we worship, and he is also a God of justice. He is a God who's going to show up and ask for an account of the innocent blood of Abel, the innocent blood of the righteous in the ground. Now, what has this panel missed? 
from the text. This is my question for you. Anybody? What's missing? The warning. The warning. Look at, look at Genesis 4, verses 6 and 7, right? 6 lets us know what the story has already said. The Lord says to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? But 7, 7 is pivotal here. 7 is key, verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. This is the crossroads of this text. The Lord goes face to face, speaks directly to Cain to warn him about sin, crouching, lurking. It's a predatorial verb. This is what you would use of a big cat, a lion, a tiger stalking its prey. Sin crouching, lurking at the door, and its desire is for you. Now, if you were to take my Christian Bible class at Seattle Pacific University in the fall, and if some of you are, you're about to get a freebie, there'd be a question on the quiz, and this would be the question, true or false? The, fir- the, the story of the fall in the garden in Genesis 3, in the famous fall into sin in the garden, the word sin never appears. True or false? What do you think? It's true. You got that one. The word sin shows up for the first time here in Genesis 4. It's not that we don't see trespass and sin in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. It's just that we're looking at a different and another angle of our understanding of sin in Genesis 4 that's really important. Let me show you. So sin in Genesis 3, let me introduce someone from my household to give you an example, okay? (laughs) This is Charlie. Charlie, isn't he adorable? I know, he's a golden doodle. He's bigger than that picture would suggest. He's like 55, 58 pounds, depending on what he's been eating. And speaking of eating, we got Charlie full grown and we have not helped his habits because Charlie likes to eat. And we've learned that some of the things Charlie desires are butter, preferably in the wrapping, (laughs) trail mix, we discovered that when we got home at midnight after going to see Black Panther one night. And we've recently learned he likes salami. Uh, He ate over a pound of salami that we left on the counter, which according to Reddit should have put his pancreas into failure and we're glad it didn't. Um, Just as a guess, which of those do you think had us in the emergency vet at 12.30 in the morning? That trail mix, yeah, raisins, dogs. Note to self, dogs don't like. Charlie has desires, right? Charlie has desires. These things are the object of his desires. He is the acting subject. He's going to go after these desires, and these desires could kill this sweet dog. And he has terrible owners. But Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 have desires, don't they? They are the acting subjects. They desire these things, and they go after it to their harm and all of us who followed. Now, Genesis 4 is completely different In Genesis 4, the warning that God gives Cain is not, do not do a specific thing. Do not kill your brother. It's more general and it's more chilling. It is, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. Notice that in this one, sin is the acting subject. And who's the object of desire? Who's the object of sin's desire? Cain. It's a different relationship than before, isn't it? And the two of them work together. So scripture gives us both of these stories. 
And what I wonder is what happens in our Christian life and what happens in the church when we only have a Genesis 3 story of individual temptation and desire. And we forget to also talk about the Genesis 4 story of sin as a predator whose desire is for us. That, it seems, is at the center of our understanding of what leads to this kind of violence. When we were in... um, when we were in Africa, this is where this picture was taken, is in Africa. This lion, by the way, is just kind of curious. This, um, he's not getting ready to spring on anything. Um, but we heard a story from our guide, Meshach. And Meshach told us a story about a time when they all pulled up in the Land Rovers and they were going to have their cup of tea. And what the guides do generally is they walk around everything to make sure there are no predators hiding anywhere. But this time, the Land Rovers pulled over, and one woman had some seriously demanding needs, and she just took off, right, before Meshach could check behind this one bush. So she comes back from the bush after taking care of her business, and she says to her friend, oh, there were the cutest little kitty kitties behind that bush. (laughs) And Meshach says, excuse me? And she says, well, you should have seen the little kitty kitties that were behind that bush. And uh, he goes to look behind the bush, and there are two baby lion cubs. You can imagine how fast Meshach ran back and had everyone in those Land Rovers and out of there. Because these weren't just two little cute little kitties behind the bush. This was a signal that there was a dangerous predator nearby that would come for you. Too often, it seems to me, we in the church... We'll talk about our sins or the sins of, uh, in the, around us as these little kitty kitties, not recognizing that these sins are actually prelude and indication of a dangerous predator in the bush, sin, who is, who's crouching at the door and whose desire is for you. Pastor Aaron reminded us, us last week of the verse from James where James warned his listeners that desire gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full-grown, gives birth to death. There's a bloodlust for sin. And maybe the reason that we don't talk about this as much is because um, we know that Jesus has defeated sin. We know that the cross has defeated sin. And so, so we don't talk about it as much. But one, if you go back and if we invite Jesus to be at this crossroads with us, and, and to look at this story and this choice that Cain is making, what we find even in Jesus' teaching is Jesus takes sin really seriously and its predatorial nature. Do you remember the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better to enter, uh, to live life maimed than to enter the, do you remember this verse? Than to enter the fires of hell. It's a harsh verse. It's hyperbole, of course. But it's Jesus' warning that, that, that keep, keep out of sight and out of reach of this predator, sin. Do you remember when Jesus, you know, my, many of us, I read the story of Cain and Abel, and I'm like, you know, my sins, they're more like these goofy little golden doodle eating salami kind of sins, right? This is the way I look at my own sins, right? I've never murdered one of my siblings. They're all alive. But then Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But I tell you, anyone who has even said, called his brother or sister, you fool in their heart, is guilty of murder. Now tell the truth. How many of you driving to church this morning had manslaughter on the road? (laughs) 
This is the thing. We tend to do the hey, kitty, kitty and forget that sin like a pr- is a predator and its desire is for you. And so, you know, it's just words. But sin is a predator and its desire is for you. It's just a little bit of envy. But its desire is for you. It's just a slight bit of sarcasm. But its desire is for you. It's just a bit of private lust. It's just one click. But its desire is for you. This is the warning at the crossroads that the Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ give us about sin as a predator and its desire is for you. And we have to admit that if we think our personal private golden doodle sins don't somehow participate in sin full-blown that leads to death, we are being naive and we're in a dangerous situation. And then the story actually gets even worse in Genesis 4 because what did the Lord say to Cain after sin like a predator is crouching at the door and its desire is for you? What does it say in your Bibles? What does it say right after that? You can say it loud. You must master it. Are you kidding me? I can't even keep my golden doodle off of the counters in the kitchen. How are we supposed to master sin? It's, this is impossible. If you look at the entire biblical witness, we learn this is impossible. From this point on in the story of the Bible, it's going to show that this is impossible. So we have this tension at this point in Genesis. We have a God who says, I have created you in my image. I have made you a little lower than the angels. I have given you stewardship over the entire created order. And sin is a part of that created order, and you must master it. We have a God who has an uncompromisingly high view of the humanity God has created and will not give us away to anything less. And then at the same time, we have this sin that we have not and cannot master. We have Moses, who's a murderer. We've got David, who's a murderer. We've got Noah, who's a drunk. We've got Israel, who worships other gods and creates violence. We've got Peter's fearful denial. All the way through the biblical witness, no one's mastering this sin. In fact, even more disheartening, Jesus, who lived a completely innocent life, tempted in every way, just as we are, but without sin, is violently murdered on a cross. So if Jesus, who personal choices-wise navigates this perfectly, cannot avoid the violence of sin preying upon the world, how are we supposed to master this? This is the bad news of the gospel, that sin is crouching and greedy, we must master it, and we cannot. But the good news of Jesus Christ's cross and resurrection is that Jesus has mastered sin, and Jesus' desire is for us. According to the New Testament witness, Jesus goes to the cross and sheds innocent blood, and his blood gives witness with every innocent victim, with all of those who are on the receiving end of the violence of sin. But we also know from Hebrews that Jesus' blood is more powerful than the blood of Abel, that Jesus' blood cries out not only for the victims, but also for the violent oppressors. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. That Jesus' blood on the cross 
rescues all of humanity from the predator sin. And so now, when we are told that we must master sin, and that stands in the scriptural witness, and we stand at this crossroads with Cain and hear this bad news, we stand there with the cross of Jesus Christ and hear the good news, that Jesus has mastered sin, and he desires you. He has freed us. And so we resist the devil who, who, who prowls, according to 1 Peter, like a hungry lion looking for its prey. That's still the way the New Testament describes the devil and sin. But we are given one who fights for us in Jesus Christ. So how do we do this? This is my question. How do we, how do we live into this if we're standing here at this crossroads today? Well, there's two things that I want to suggest from this text. And the first one is to go back to Genesis 1 to 4 and this worship, this offering. The good news that the New Testament tells us is that while, yes, you are called to master the sin, no, you are not called to master it in your own power. You are called to do this in the power and the, and the presence of Jesus Christ in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. So it begins in worship. It begins in offering our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. It begins in letting the Holy Spirit work that freedom in us. So yes, there's truth-telling about the places we're hiding. And yes, there's accountability with one another about the struggles we have and where we fail. And the good news in all of that is we don't do this by our own power. There really is a power in the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that can break the power of sin. And I've seen it in people's lives. I've seen it. So we get together and we tell our stories. So that's Genesis 1 to 4. But then the second thing we do that's very important is Genesis 8 through 10. And this is witness. In the first part, it's about loving our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and allowing Jesus to free us from the sins that beset us. In the second part, it's about loving our brothers and sisters as ourselves. We see that throughout Scripture. But specific to this text, what does God say to Cain when he shows up? The blood of your brother Abel is crying out to me. Specific to this text is justice. Specific to this text is we bear witness. Specific to this text is we bear witness to the innocent whose blood cries out because they have been the victims of the violence of sin in the world. This is why Mark Laberton makes a pilgrimage to the lynching memorial in, in Montgomery, Alabama, to bear witness, to say to our brothers and sisters who were the victims of the violence of a worship gone awry and a sinful blown to death, that, that we are here with you, that you are not alone, that God has heard the blood of the innocent and through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ will work reconciliation to reverse that legacy of death and of violence. We look ahead at how God's people failed to master this sin of racism. And we tell the truth that Jesus has mastered this sin and we will witness and work with him. There are so many places for us to do this in our culture and society. And we do it knowing the good news that we say by our presence and our person that Jesus is here and his desire is for you. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you. 
Thank you that you suffered on our behalf for the sake of the joy set before you of setting your people free. So Lord Jesus, we pray you would forgive us when we have treated lightly the very sin that took you to the cross. Would you please make us alert and aware by your Holy Spirit of the sins that we are coddling like house pets that full grown will destroy us or others. Give us the grace to trust you to be victorious in the sin over our lives. And Lord Jesus, we pray especially this morning for the victims of violence, domestic violence, violence of neighbor against neighbor, specifically the violence of, of racial terrorism. And we ask you, Lord Jesus, to redeem and restore and make right for the generations that have come since and for the sake of the generations still to come. It's in your mighty name we pray this. Amen.